This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. We are back with season four. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's art collections. Visit us at artuk.org. Follow us on social channels at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. And finally, pop over to iTunes and leave a star rating and let us know how you enjoy this series. It helps other people to discover us and join in on the fun. Smiling face emoji, fire emoji, woman dancing emoji. I'm excited to discuss the story of these little electronic symbols today. Don't think they're a serious topic? Well, raised hand emoji because the Museum of Modern Art in New York begged to differ. In 2016, the MoMA acquired the original set of emoji distributed by NTT Docomo for their collection. And two years prior to that, an emoji version of Herman Melville's Moby Dick called Get Ready For It emoji dick was acquired by the Library of Congress. When you think about it, visual expressions of language extend back millennia, be they the hieroglyphics of Egypt or early ideograms of languages across Asia, Africa, and the Americas. Images have the ability to cross language barriers and transcend literacy challenges to quickly convey ideas. And not to over-intellectualize the topic, emoji are just plain fun to use. Before we jump into our conversation today, I want to share that Art UK is launching an exciting emoji project and we need your help. As you may know, we've been digitizing sculpture from collections across the UK and adding them to our website for your viewing pleasure. As part of the wider project, we're launching a call for designers to help create a sculpture emoji. We're asking you to submit your sculpture emoji designs, which will be reviewed by an incredible judging panel and then put to a public vote. We'll then submit the winning design to the Unicode Consortium for consideration. Please head over to artuk.org for full details on how to get involved. Entries close Friday, August 9th. Back to today's episode. I recently had the pleasure of having a chat with Paul Galloway, architecture and design collection specialist at the MoMA. We discussed why the museum acquired an emoji collection and how the symbols we know today originated in Japan. Enjoy. Emoji are part of a long evolution of including images and abstract shapes within text. We've been doing this for hundreds of years where you can think of even medieval illuminated manuscripts that would be embellished with pictures. So there's always been a desire to embellish written text and written correspondence with images because of course the abstract shapes that make up written language can feel a little dull. This becomes even more important when we get to electronic communication with the rise of things like email and then text messaging. And when mobile internet first started happening in the 1990s, there was a need to make this look a little bit better. So this kind of rose out of uh, something that had already been happening in the West, where you can make a smiley face with just a colon and a parentheses. And people had been doing that since the 80s. And those are called emoticons. In Japan, they have a larger character set. And so there were additional images or kind of glyphs that you could use to create more complicated faces. And the Japanese developed something called kaomoji, which means picture faces. And when they finally made the push to mobile internet, uh, the Japanese had mobile internet on their cell phones well before we did uh, in America or Europe. They recognized the need to kind of continue this push that Emoticon and Kaomoji had to kind of make the visual interface more compelling. And you have to kind of remember how small those cell phone screens were in the 90s. They were often just one color, the kind of green 
backlit LCD screen. So NTT Docomo and JPhone and a few other companies were working on this. The, the first kind of use of emoji happened on mobile pagers, which were also kind of developed into texting devices. And so the first emoji was a heart. Um, and this was something that was released on a pager made by NTT Docomo. And I should sort of preface by saying emoji is a Japanese word. It is kind of two parts, e emoji, which means picture character, right? It's a kind of picture character. Oh, so it has nothing to do with the word emotion or? Yeah, this is a very, very common <laughs> misconception is that there's, oh, wow. so, uh, it's, and I think that's one of the reasons why here at MoMA, we wanted to kind of wind the story back to the kind of creation of emoji in Japan in the 90s to sort of a, to make everybody aware that the word emoji isn't a Japanese word, but also to, to sort of point out the extremely specific Japanese character and nature that defines the early emoji set. And that is the reason why there's still so much Japanese flavor to even now uh, the emoji set. Yeah. Because that was really a, a Japanese concern for the first 10 years that these things were being used. They were an exclusively Japanese phenomenon that then later becomes adapted to use uh, in the Western world. How do you think that it kind of migrated outside of Japan? It's, well, part of the reason why it stuck, it stayed in Japan was because each different company had their own emoji set and they didn't work with each other. So if you, in the US, we have big telecoms like AT&T or Verizon. Uh, so I'll use that as an example. So if I was on a Verizon cell phone and trying to text somebody on an AT&T cell phone, our emoji wouldn't go across right? because there were specific software platforms on each one. So that partly is the reason why they were really stuck in Japan and didn't really get outside of it. It was technical limitations. So once they became encoded in uh, Unicode in 2010, then suddenly it becomes possible for one user on a Mac to send something to somebody on a PC, uh, for example. So Unicode is this way of making sure characters and glyphs translate across platforms, sort of regardless of what the software environment is. Um, so it was really primarily a technical concern that uh, kept them from being adopted outside the West. That's it's so crazy that you say that was only in 2010, because I do remember it used to be that between an iPhone and an Android phone, the, the same emojis weren't there. But then it seems like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it was that recent. You, you, you get so used to sending them like they were always around. Yeah, they were not released on iOS until 2011. Gmail had actually included them in uh, their chat uh, window and chat app in 2006. So that was actually probably the first uh, experience most users in the West had with emoji was in, was in Gmail, but it was still locked on your desktop. It wasn't something you could do in the mobile internet. And you have to also remember that iPhone doesn't come out till 2007. So it's uh, all, f or is it 2008? Uh, it's all fairly recent. And it's, and even now there is still differences in emoji. You can look at Facebook's emoji are slightly different than Google's emoji or slightly different than Apple's. Um, everybody's quite different. Um, and there are still some uh, kind of variations among the different emoji set. So who are the people that created the initial look for the the emojis, like the yellow face design and that sort of thing. Was that one person? Well, again, it's designed by the different companies, uh, you have to remember. So the original ones in Japan were on essentially black and white screens. So they have no color whatsoever. They're just very, very simple pixelated images, whether that's the JPhone ones or the Docomo ones. Um, they, they have no color. And it's only when you get color screens 
and I think 1999 or 2000 that you suddenly have these sort of colors. The yellow face things are again something that happens uh, in Japan. I think it was just a bright color because those screens had such a limited color palette in the very beginning. You couldn't do kind of great variations in skin tone or anything back then. So, so much of the look that we've come to accept is really has its DNA in technical limitations of just how basic and simple those phones were in the very beginning. And so different companies had different designs. So Docomo had a design, SoftBank had a different design, then later Google has their own designs. And in many ways, they keep kind of harking back to where they all begin in the, in the 90s. So how did the Museum of Modern Art decide to add them to their collection? And also, how do you even have an emoji in a collection? That's a very good question. So I'll answer both. The reason we decided to acquire them was because we're always on the lookout for works of design that cross over into really great masterpieces. And we felt that what emoji are doing today are really redefining human speech. They are uh, an incredible adjunct to language. They enrich language. They've enmeshed themselves in all kinds of discourse. They are such a symbol for the transition away from telephone calls, right? A lot of people argue that the phone call is dead, right? That the iPhone and the mobile internet kind of killed the phone, the phone call and gave rise to the sort of written text and uh, text messaging with each other. So we were fascinated with what emoji have done, but we were uh, even more keen to sort of back up the story to where they come from and look at uh, Japan in the 90s and find the emoji set that we felt was the most successful. The NTT Docomo set that we acquired is not the actual very, very first emoji. There's earlier ones for pagers, there's other cell phone companies, but we felt it was by far the most successful. It was the one that really exploded emoji into popular use in Japan. So in the same way that the Apple iPod was not the first mobile music player, it was definitely the best and the most influential. So we felt the same thing about Docomo's emoji. And then as to how that work is actually in the collection, what we have is essentially image files, the very basic, highly pixelated image files that were used on Docomo's uh, software platforms in the 90s, and the ability and rights to display them here at the museum. So there's not a physical thing, there's not an emoji that we can hang on the wall, but there's a number of works that are digital in nature, video art, performance works uh, that are ephemeral, that don't have a physical object. That, and many, many museums collect these, not just MoMA, but the, the Met, the Tate, uh, the Whitney, lots of museums have entered into this idea of digital collection. Do you think at some point you'll th think about having those emojis interact with other items in the design or art collections in some kind of way? We don't usually have works of art or works of design kind of interacting with each other. The emoji, whenever we display them, are interactive. We do like to have them uh, in animations or being used in some way because they're not something that just sits there statically. Right? Emoji is, again, something you use, you experience it, you see them in motion. Uh, so we try to uh, engage our designers to make something compelling that both speaks to their use in the 90s on these very tiny cell phones, but also helps people see them in a new light and then connect the original emoji from the 90s with how they look now. And that's how we've, we've exhibited them a few times now and will continue to in the future. But in general, it's all about sort of educating people into where these things come from, how are they being used, what is the uh, philosophy behind them. What do you think is 
maybe some of the more important or interesting additions to the set, um, because they, they do add some a couple of times a year, what have been some that made you the most excited? Well, it's, it's, it has been really interesting to see the various conversations that erupt around emoji, uh, because if you think that they've only been in popular use since 2011, that's a fairly brief period in which they've been uh, used and how rapidly they've enmeshed themselves in contemporary discourse. And there's controversies like the pistol, right, which uh, at one point Apple, or actually they, they did change it into a water pistol right, because they mm-hmm. were concerned that people would use it in threatening speech, right? um, mm-hmm. that emoji could be seen as threatening or abusive. So they changed it to a water pistol, but of course Google at the time had not. So if I on an iPhone sent you a pistol and you were on an Android system, you would see a real pistol. I would see a water, uh, water gun. Um, or the other really fascinating thing has been the, the conversation around inclusion, right? Uh, in the original 2011 set, the only thing that were representations of women were a ballerina, a bride, and I think maybe a nurse or something like that. Uh, so very, very heavily gendered. So there was a big push to expand that. And so then you have lady construction worker, lady doctor, um, lady pilot, and these other kind of uh, broader representations. And then there was the conversation that happened around skin tone, right? That the yellow was seen as a default kind of Eurasian skin tone, uh, and they wanted to kind of broaden that, open it up. So now that led to the way that you can now press down on them and select various skin tones and colors. Uh, So there's this constant sort of, uh, because they just continue to enmesh themselves so, so deeply in discourse, there's a continued desire to broaden that and broaden their capacity to speak to lots of different uh, stories and uses. There definitely seems to be a conversation or a a deep connection with representation with emojis. Yes. And that has been reflected in the addition of the woman wearing a job, the red hair emojis coming. I have a big Afro, so I'm happy for the (laughs) curly hair emoji coming. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting how, um, in a way, people take emojis really seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what's fascinating. So the, the, the emoji that are always the most used are the ones that have humans, right? So faces and gestures involving people, but there's also people find their identity and objects, right? So there was a big push to include things like the dumpling emoji because so many of the food items, for example, were Japanese foods, right? There's the sushi mm-hmm. bowl, there's a fish, there's all these things that were still very rooted in Japanese culture. And then that it expanded it to mostly Western things like a hamburger or pizza and things like that. So there was a push to say, no, look, there's a, a billion, over a billion people that have different kinds of food and we want to be represented in that aspect as well not just with our bodies but also in the things that are big parts of our lives so the dumpling emoji uh there's i know forthcoming going to be a mate emoji so yerba mate which is a very very popular drink in south america particularly argentina argentinians wanted to be able to see their culture in there somehow and not through the body or the face, but instead through something that is used by them. So it's this desire for personalization, this desire for cultural specificity is this really fascinating thing to see play out uh, as the emoji set expands. What's the emoji that you personally are, are still waiting for? I have to admit that I am still kind of an old school emoji user and uh, Mm -hmm. most, I was really waiting for the barfing one. That was actually one that I was uh, always in need of uh, (laughs) the the kind of 
the barfing emoji, uh, the blown mind one with the, the head that's exploding like a bomb. I uh, use that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That one, that one, these things that convey very, the, the kind of emotions that are most important to convey through the written text, right? Like disgust, the very powerful, very romantic emotions, extreme emotions like disgust or uh, lust or all of these various things. So I, I feel like the ones I need are there. Uh, yeah. But uh, people keep surprising me. Yeah. Sometimes you don't know you need one until it shows up. And then it shows up and you're like, oh, of course, of course I need that one. Well, and it's also interesting how people have co-opted the meaning of things to mean other things. Um, I mean, obviously there, there are the, there's the eggplant emoji as one example, but I mean, they've, they've actually even on Instagram to use that one as an example. Now you can't search for an eggplant emoji. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there was uh, an outcry a couple of years ago when Apple redesigned the peach emoji and they made it less uh, booty-like. And there was <laughs> all this outcry by people saying, you've totally screwed up my sex. Now it's just this round-looking peach. Bring yeah. back the little indentation that makes it a cute butt. Uh, so Apple uh, eventually relented and brought back the, the, the bootylicious uh, peach on there. That's and, hilarious. Yeah, that was one. But this is one of the fascinating things that happens with images and symbols is that they can be repurposed. Uh, there's things like the poor innocent little frog, right? Everybody loves that cute little frog. It can reference so many great things, but now it is uh, largely a tool of the alt-right, right? It means oh, is the it? Frog. Oh, yeah, no. I use it with a T when I'm like being shady. Uh, <laughs> it's like Kermit like reference. Kermit, Kermit <laughs> sipping his tea. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's unfortunate that's been kind of co-opted or the okay symbol, right? The, the kind of, that's another one that's been co-opted by white supremacists in the United States. That's now a symbol of white power. And this is the unfortunate thing that can continue to happen. The, the Nazis very famously reused the swastika, which was just an inverted Buddhist symbol, right? So that was a symbol that's all over temples in Asia, uh, all over the place. And all you do is flip it around and then you've got the Nazi swastika. Um, mm. So there's always this danger for things to be repurposed or reused. I mean, very famously in the American South, the cross, which is a symbol for over a billion Christians, became a symbol of hatred, right? When they yeah. would be burned in people's front yards. So there's this, in my mind, very fascinating uh, capacity for these things to be used for all purposes, what we would call noble uses and also ignoble uses. Stop sign emoji. That's all for this episode. Don't forget to go to artuk.org to find out how you can submit a sculpture emoji design. Tell a friend, this is important. We want to see your creative designs for the ultimate public sculpture commission. You could be doing anything right now and you chose to tune in with us today and we appreciate that. As always, thank you for listening and please tune in again next time.